0: I think this is safe to say that this is a very important passage for us to consider in the life of our nation, the life of our church. We've just been through many, um, yeah, many difficult challenges as a result of COVID-19. Really, over the last year and a half, we faced some unprecedented challenges. Some of those challenges have amounted really to little more than inconveniences. But some of the challenges we faced over the last year and a half, they've been more substantial. I mean, for Christians, for those who follow Jesus, one of the most substantial challenges has been the way that COVID-19 restrictions have really limited the free exercise of religion in our nation. There have been executive orders on social distancing made by state and local governments that have made it very difficult for churches to meet, to have the ability to gather for worship, in a, in a way that is really unprecedented in the history of our nation anyways. Uh, For months on end, churches were closed in many parts of this nation, and the only thing that kind of approximates that just a little bit was the 1918 Spanish flu, uh, which killed tens of thousands, and churches during that time, they closed in particular cities, but then they closed for just a few weeks. And so this was a a new thing in our experience, and of course we know that churches have responded in different ways to these restrictions. Churches have been all over the map. Many of us are familiar with the way that John MacArthur and Grace Community Church out in Sun Valley, California, they responded after a time, they drew the line, and they decided that they were going to exercise a civil disobedience, a peaceful protest, and they began to gather together again. But not as many of us are familiar with how my former church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., responded. It's also known as CHBC. They responded a little differently. You see, the District of Columbia had imposed some very severe restrictions, uh, some of the most severe restrictions in the entire nation. Gatherings of more than 100 people, either indoors or outdoors, were absolutely prohibited, and as a result, the church could not meet together for nearly six months. It took an injunction of the court. To permit them to be able to gather outside in order to worship God. And that was after some six months of being closed. And here's the argument that CHBC, Capitol Hill Baptist, made. It's a simple argument. They said that God has commanded his people to gather together to worship him. This is God's command. This is the command that he gave us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as is the habit of some. But encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And this is also the universal practice you see in the New Testament. You see churches gathering together weekly to worship God. It's the expectation in the New Testament that churches will gather weekly together to worship God. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 speaks about this. Even in the early life of the church, even when the church had some 5,000 participants, members, Acts 5, verse 12, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 to 5, the apostle Paul speaks to this church in Corinth, and he's given them instructions on how they are to discipline a, a member of the church who is living in open sin. And this is how Paul wanted that to happen. Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, there's this expectation that the church is going to be gathering, gathering together. According to Capitol Hill Baptist lawsuit, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser's restrictions made it impossible for CHBC to obey God's command to gather together as a church. And ultimately, the courts agreed. On July 12th of this year, just a few weeks ago, the court ruled in the District of Columbia that it had indeed overstepped its bounds in limiting the ability of CHBC to gather together for worship. One source reported it this way The city agreed that it will not enforce any current or future COVID 19 restrictions to prohibit CHBC from gathering as one congregation in the District of Columbia. The city also agreed that it will not impose restrictions on CHBC that are more restrictive than the restrictions on comparable secular activities as defined by the Supreme Court. Now, I bring up this example this morning because we are going to be studying together what the Bible has to say about the Christian's relationship to the government, and what the Bible teaches on this issue is actually very simple. You see, the Bible commands us to submit ourselves to the human authorities that have been placed over us because God is the one who has established those authority. However, we will note that our submission to the government is not absolute. There is one exception. And the one exception is this. When the government tells us to disobey God, that is when we must disobey the government. Humbly, as graciously as we can, but that is when we must disobey the government because we are to obey God rather than man. So we're continuing our study in 1 Peter Last week, we looked at verses 11 and 12 of this chapter, chapter 2, and in those two verses, Peter really gave us kind of an overview of the things he's going to be talking about uh, for the rest of the book, really from verse 13, what we're studying this morning, all the way to chapter 5. Peter's going to be talking about this. What does it practically look like for the people of God to live in this world? What is the Christian life supposed to look like? How are we supposed to live? Because we are distinct, because we are different, because we do belong to God through Christ. Well, last week we saw that we were to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against our souls. So the men and women of this world, they pursue sinful desires. You see it plastered all over uh, various forms of media. We're not to do that. Why? Because we understand we have a soul, and those things poison and wound the soul, and they dishonor God. We stay away from those things because they wage war against our never-dying souls. We also saw, that's the negative, here's the positive, We also saw that we were to live honorable lives, good lives, respectable lives, the kind of lives that the people around us can look at and say, there's a person who has integrity. That person has integrity. They're a hard worker. They're a kind person. They're a generous person. There's something about our lives that everyone's going to be able to look at and say, this is an honorable people, and this is what we're called to be as believers. We're not called to be separatists. We're not called to be cynics. We're not called to be critics. We're called to be those that live in the world because we are part of this world, but we're to live distinctly in this world. So here, now we're going to be transitioning to this next section, really. I mean, that's something of an introduction of what we're going to be talking about. And the very next section of what Peter talks about is he begins this discussion on what does it look like for the people of God to live in the world? The very first thing he talks about is this issue of submission. And the first kind of context for submission that he's going to talk about is this issue of our relationship to the government. What is our responsibility to the government that God has placed over us? So we're going to study this passage using three points. Three points from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. If you're taking notes, you'll have these points come up as we go through. But the first is the command to submit. We're going to see the command to submit as we look at verses 13 and 14. And then we're going to see the reason to submit when we get to verse 15. And then we're going to see the way to submit when we look at verses 16 and 17, those three points. So let's look at the first point together, the command to submit. Take your copy of God's word. I hope you have one. And look at verses 13 and 14. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. So in the first part of verse 13, you see this main command that Peter gives us here, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. The word submit there, it's actually a military term. It refers to kind of lining up in a military fashion under the authority of a leader, right? We're to line ourselves up under an authority. So Christians should willingly put themselves under the authority of of those that God has placed over them. In other words, we're to willingly obey the government. It's not supposed to be a hard thing for us to do. It's something that we should do, and it's something that we should do willingly. It's an important thing. Peter says Christians are to do so because of the Lord. It can also be translated for the Lord's sake. So God is in the picture here. Why does God want us to submit to the government? Well, he's in the picture, right, for the Lord's sake. What did Peter mean by this? Well, he meant that the Lord is the one who ordained all human authority. It's a massive statement if you understand it. It's massive to think that every single human authority has been established by God. Will Hester read about this from Romans 13 earlier in the service. The first part of Romans 13, verses 1 to 2, says this, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So let's bring it home to our context. That means that the presidencies of Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both ordained by God. He's instituted the government that we live under. And Christians living in America have responsibility to submit to their leadership regardless of political association. You see, God's the one that has placed them there. When Christians submit to the government, God has established their doing. They're doing so because of the Lord. Another way of saying is that they're doing so out of reverence for God because we acknowledge God, we acknowledge His sovereignty, we acknowledge His rule ultimately, and we can trust Him. And so we line ourselves up willingly under the authority that He has placed over us. And then you have to understand that this is a comprehensive command. So look at verse 13, the second part of verse 13 and verse 14. Look at how comprehensive this command is. Peter says, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do good and to praise those who are good. The Roman emperor there is, of course, you know, he's the supreme leader of the Roman Empire. He had the power of life and death in his hand. If he wanted you to die, you would be dead. If he wanted you to live, you would live. He had the final say in all matters of what occurred in the the Roman Empire. The word governors there is actually a, a more general word, so it's not exactly specifically what we think of as governors, so that would be included, but it's, it's a number of lower level kind of government officials at, at different levels. So one example of that would be Pontius Pilate, who was the governor during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Now you think about what we know about the person that was the emperor when Peter's writing this. That's uh, likely Nero. Nero was a tyrant. There's no other word for Nero. He was an absolute tyrant. Pontius Pilate, of course, was the one who crucified the Lord Jesus. And in telling believers to submit to the emperor and to governor sent by him, Peter is saying that Christians are to submit to all governmental authorities at all levels. So just to bring it back to our own context, that would mean at the federal level, we are to submit. And at the state level, we are to submit. And at the local level, we are to submit to those authorities. Now there is a lot here but let's just learn or look at three three observations and the first is this authority is good authority is a good thing many of us uh, have recently seen in the life of our nation mobs that have gone through major cities and they have been vandalizing and destroying properties and they've been spray painting an a a red a with a circle around it as they've gone this is the symbol for anarchy They've been promoting anarchy as they have been destroying the private property of others. In doing that, in promoting anarchy, they're saying positively that authority is an evil thing and it's something that should be done away with. In the words of the book of Judges, they believe that every person should be able to do what is right in his or her own eyes. You see, the Bible talks about absolutely everything. And it talks about this issue as well. You see, the Bible teaches us, though, that that's not the case. The Bible teaches that authority is not an evil thing to be gotten away with. The Bible teaches us that authority is a good thing. It's something that we should give thanks to God for. Authority is God's idea, and God is the ultimate authority. And God is the one, as we've already seen, who has established every authority that there is And here's the thing that we need to remember. When authority is exercised in a godly way, it is designed by God to be a great blessing. It's designed to be a great blessing. Listen to what David wrote. We've quoted this verse before and we will continue to because I think it's important for us to remember that when authority is used in a godly way, it is designed by God to be a blessing. This is what David said. He said, "...the one who rules the people with justice..." who rules in the fear of God is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, like the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. And it's really a beautiful picture. It's a picture of blessing. The idea is that the the one who exercises a godly authority, he blesses or she blesses the people in the same way that the sun and the rain bless the grass, causing the grass to flourish. It's a, a beautiful picture. And we see it here. That authority is a good thing, and we should thank God for it. There's a a second thing we should see. God has a good purpose for human government. So flesh it out just a little bit further. What are God's purposes for human government? Well, you see that in verse 14. Here Peter tells us what God's purposes for the government are. He says, it is to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. So human government has a negative function. The design is that that government is instituted in order to, to pay back, if you will, the crimes of those that are harming others, that are doing what is wrong. The crime, the penalty for the crime, should be meted out. And if it's not meted out, what happens to society? Utter chaos, which is bad for everybody. So there's this negative function of the government to punish those who do wrong, and yet it's designed to be a blessing so that society can flourish. But then there's a positive function as well. God desires human rulers to praise those who do what is good, and the idea is that good behavior should be rewarded. There should be freedom there. There there should be fairness. There should even be, in some instances, favorable treatment for those that are doing good. An example of that, in my thought, are soldiers that serve our nation. There, There should be There should be some blessing that's given to them as they do what is good. Just one example of that. Now, obviously, human governments often fail to fulfill this God-given purpose well. We've all seen that. You know that in history. Governments often do not live up to these expectations. But I do agree with Tom Schreiner when he said that even the most oppressive governments do hold in check evil to some extent. They keep society from descending into utter chaos, utter anarchy. So God has a good purpose for government, and we should be grateful for it. It's one of the reasons why we pray for those in authority over us, if you notice. One of the regular practices of our church is that we pray for those who are in authority over us. Why? Because we want God to bless them. Uh, We want things to go well for them, and we want them to rule well. We want them to rule in a way where they punish those who do evil, and where they bless and promote and help those that are doing what is good. This is what Paul commands us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. He says, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings, and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So why should we pray for the government? Because when the government is doing what it should do, the people of God are freed up to do what we should do. And what should we do? Well, we should be living godly lives. We should be living the kind of lives that honor God, and we should be living lives uh, that enable us to share Christ with others. We want that kind of a context. But then there's a third observation we need to make. Christians need to remember that our submission to the government is not absolute. Our submission to the government is not absolute. So there's a very clear command in this passage, and the clear command given to us is submit to every human authority but what we need to keep in our minds as the people of God is that our submission isn't ultimately to the human authority. Our submission is ultimately to God who has established that authority. Our submission to the government is actually an expression of our higher submission to God, who is the one who has instituted those authorities. Friends, Jesus alone has all authority. That's what he told us in Matthew 28:18, All authority has been given to me, he says. He's the one that we ultimately submit to. So that means the people of God obey the government up to a point. We obey the government up to the point that the government tells us to disobey God. And when the government tells us to disobey God, at that point we disobey the government because we are obeying the higher authority. You see, it's not rebellion. It's just a higher submission to a higher authority. We see an example of this in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. Josiah read it for us earlier in the service. Here's this amazing, amazing incident where Peter and John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, heal this crippled man, and everyone can see it. You know, one of the things that's great about the miracles in the Bible is that they're actually verifiable, right? So if you watch the television and someone has a headache, but they don't have a headache anymore, that's not verifiable but someone who's been crippled their entire life, but then all of a sudden they're jumping around? Okay, that's the kind of miracles you see happen in the Bible. That's the power of God on display, you understand? So here, everyone's amazed. They can't believe that this has happened. They come to Peter and John, and they're looking at them, and they think, Peter and John, they must be such great and holy men. And Peter and John say, no, no, it's not us. It's not as we're so godly that we're able to do this, but no, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who did this. By the way, Jesus is the one that you all crucified. So they're very bold in sharing the gospel, and the religious authorities, they don't like the boldness. And so they decide that they're going to threaten Peter and John. They can't do anything about it, right? The miracle has happened. Everyone can see it. It's not a headache that's healed. No, no. This man was crippled. Now he's jumping around. They all know that it's true, but still in the hardness of their hearts, they threaten them and say, you must not preach in the name of Christ anymore. And what do they say? Well, at that point, they submit to the higher authority, They say, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, in terms of our own experience in America, it's been very rare, uh, at least in the past few hundred years, that Christians have had to disobey the government in order to obey God, but we do not know what may come in the future. We do not know what restrictions may come down the line as a result of COVID or some other unforeseen tragedy. We don't know what challenges we may face. We have seen over the past year that some churches have determined that they needed to challenge the authority that was over them. They've done it in different ways. Some have done it through peaceful protest. Others have appealed to the higher authority of the courts. We don't know the future, but we do know this. As much as we can... We want to obey 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. We want to obey the authority that has been placed over us. And when we cannot obey God, well, that's when we have to disobey that authority. So pray for our church. Pray that we would be wise in this. Pray that we would have humble hearts. Pray that we'd be marked by submissive hearts, that we would be trusting in God so much that we would be able to, to submit well to the authorities that are placed over us. But pray also that we would have courageous hearts And that should the time come when we need to take a stand and obey God rather than man, that we would, by His grace, be willing to do that and be very encouraged. Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. We do not have to be afraid. Jesus is on the throne. He knows precisely what this church and every other church needs. So there it is. There's the command, verses 13 and 14, this command to submit to the government that God has placed over us. Now we see the reason to submit. Look at verse 15, second point, the reason to submit. Peter tells us, Why God wants us to submit to the government. He says, For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So remember the context of 1 Peter. What's going on in the life of the people to whom Peter is writing? Well, they are beginning to experience persecution for following Jesus. And at this point in their experience, that persecution looks like slander, it looks like being maligned, by being insulted, by being lied about because of their faith. They were accused of rebellion against Caesar. They were accused of cannibalism. They were accused of any number of other offenses, none of which were true, but they were accused of them. So how were they going to counteract the slander that they were experiencing from their enemies? Well, what does God say? God says, live a godly life. Live a godly life. Live such good lives that those who are slandering them would be silenced. That word silence there is interesting. It's, it actually is a word that speaks of being muzzled, right? You've seen a, a muzzle on a dog. It's like the good works of a Christian would literally close the mouth of their critics. So the critics are lying about Christians, saying they do this and they do this and do this. And been, when people look, when they look at the actual lifestyle of the believers, well, the lie is shown to be a lie. And everyone knows that that's what's happening because these are respectful people. These are honorable people, and these are people of integrity, you see. That's what God wants. He wants our godly lives to be that which would silence the criticism and slander of others. Do you notice here that God wants Christians to be good citizens? It's what he's calling us to be here. He's calling us to be good citizens. We are to be characterized by doing good in society, not by separating from society. Okay, in the early years of the church, the first few centuries of the church, the the monks that lived in monasteries, they got this wrong. They thought what God wanted them to do was to leave society and culture in order to go be holy behind the walls of a monastery. That's not what the Bible teaches. God wants us to be in the world, even as we are not of the world. God wants us to be good citizens. He wants us to do good to our communities and the countries in which we live. Now, there's an example of this from the Old Testament. Many commentators, as I was reading this week, they pointed back to the way God instructed His Old Testament people, Israel, who had been sent into exile in Babylon. So this was not their home. In fact, they were living under the, under the, the, the eye, kind of the, the rod, if you will, of their oppressors. How does God want them to respond? Well, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7 contains God's wisdom for these exiles. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourself and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city. I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. What did God want the exiled Jews to do in Babylon? He wanted them to do good to their communities, even while they're in exile. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, we've already seen over and over as we looked at 1 Peter, that as the people of God, we are to think of ourselves as exiles in this world. Uh, This is not our home, is the other way of saying it, right? We We don't belong here. Our country is a a future country, it's a heavenly country, it's where Christ is, that's where we're, we're going, we're citizens of this nation, we haven't even been there yet, but that's where we're going. But in the meantime, we are strangers, we're exiles, we're sojourners and foreigners in this foreign land. How are we supposed to respond? Well, we have a responsibility to do good. We have a responsibility to bless others. We want others to be blessed, and we want to live the kind of lives that will silence or muzzle the mouths of those that would slander us for, for following Jesus. I'm very grateful for Clifton Bell, for Barbara Lackey, for Lori Monfreda, for Abby Monfreda, and others who are going to the Pineapple Hotel on Wednesday evenings to teach English to migrant workers. They're seeking to do good. They're seeking to bless our community and my prayer is that our church will be marked by that kind of ministry. And there's actually a lot of those things happening here and there, and I think that's wonderful. And we should continue to do that. Why we could, should continue to do good in our community to be a blessing, because it's part of the good works that we've been called to do. We will be given opportunities to share the gospel. Most important thing anyone needs is to know about Jesus. And we will have the opportunity to demonstrate that Christians are good citizens who love serving others, and God is glorified by that. There's a second observation we should make. Another thing we should see is that God's way of dealing with slander is so different from the world's way. What happens in the world when people are slandered? What do they do? They slander back. They fight back. Yeah, you're going to do that to me? Watch what I do to you. You're going to hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Ten times harder. That's the mindset of this world. But do you notice that God doesn't teach us to attack back? He doesn't teach us to do that, does he? He says, no, you live a good life. You live a life of integrity, the kind of life that when people see your life, they'll know that those who are slandering and accusing you, they'll know that they are lying. And even if they don't know, who does know? God knows. God knows. And at the end of the day, friends, whose opinion matters? Is it people that are going to breathe for 70 or 80 years and then die? Or is it the living God? Whose opinion matters? So we want to live in a way that brings honor to Him. And He tells us the way to respond to slander is by living a good life. It's by doing good. As in all things, the Lord Jesus is our example. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. When He was insulted... He did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There's this beautiful model of suffering and receiving undeserved suffering, but not cursing in return, but instead doing good. That's a model for us to pursue. So there's the reason to submit that Peter gives us in this passage. Why do we submit? We want to live such godly lives that those who would slander us as evildoers would be shown to be false, and so they would be silenced. There's a third point we want to see this morning, the way to submit, verses 15, excuse me, verses 16 and 17, the way to submit, Peter says, submit as free people not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So here in verse 16, Peter's unpacking more of what our submission to the government is to look like. This is really the way that we are to submit. Verse 16, he says, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. So we are to submit to the government as free people. What does that mean? Now we're to submit as free people. Well, once again, listen, once again, Peter is talking about our identity. You realize, I mean, how many, how many sermons have we been talking about our identity in Christ? Why? Because this book is chocked full with who we are in Christ. He's talking about our identity again. And who are we? Well, we are free people. What does it mean? It means that Christians have been set free from slavery to sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. And Christians have been set free from the penalty of the law, the law that was accusing us, that was condemning us for all the sins that we have all committed. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 And when you were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And Christians, listen, have been set free from the fear of death. That's what it says in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. As you walk through this world, you will notice those who do not follow Christ. You will notice much fear of death, and that fear will look like ignoring it. They will never want to be in a quiet place where they have to have deep thoughts about who they are and where they come from and what's going to happen when they die. Why? Because death is an awful thing. And there's a fear of death. There's a lot of fear of death in our own day, but Christians are those who have been set free from the fear of death. What an amazing thing to be a free person. We are God's free men and women. But we are still to submit to the governmental authorities that God has placed over us. Peter says there in the middle part of verse 16, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, which is to say this, we're not supposed to say, well, God has set me free. I'm free in the Lord, so now I don't have to submit myself to the government anymore. I can live how I want to live. No, you see, that's just a cover-up for evil because all authority is ordained by God. And then in the last part of verse 16, we are to live as God's slaves. I find that to be a very strong picture. We're to live as God's slaves. The word slave there is strong. It's strong in the context of our culture. It's been strong throughout every other culture. In Roman culture, slaves were the lowest members of society. They had no rights. Indeed, Their will was to be in every way subordinated to the will of their master In calling us God's slaves. It's saying something about us. You see, it's true of Christians. We are to, listen, no longer live for what we want. We are to no longer live for what we want. Now we are to live for what God wants. We are to find our delight in having His will be done and not my will be done. And God wants us to submit to the human authorities that He has placed over us. Do you notice that the life of a Christian is a humble life? It's a humble life. It's a life of submission. We are to submit to the government that God has placed over us because by doing so, we are submitting to God who is the authority over all. And then in verse 17, what does Peter do? He really kind of paints a picture for us of what this humble life looks like. What does it look like in terms of our relationships with others? He gives us these four rapid-fire commands there. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So Christians are to honor everyone. Everyone is everyone. All that you come in contact with, Christians, non-Christians, we are to be courteous and respectful to all people as we live among them. And Christians are to love the brothers and sisters. Well, who are the brothers and sisters? Well, they're fellow believers. Uh, those who are those who are a part of the family of God. We actually have a higher obligation, do you notice, to one another. Now we are to love one another. That word love is it's agape. We're familiar with that. This is God's love. We're to love one another with God's love. We are to love one another in self-sacrificial ways, laying down our rights. In order to bless others, this is what Jesus commanded us. He says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I've loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the great things we can pray for this church is that we would love one another so well that when people from the outside come in, those who aren't following Jesus, and they they just watch how we interact, there'd be something that would be very different because there's so much self-protection out there. I've got to keep the walls up, because someone might take advantage of me. Someone might harm me. Someone might take something from me that I want. But no, and here you notice, what's the command? The command is, I want to lay down my life for you, and you're going to lay down your life for me, and there's this, there's this rep- uh, reciprocity. There's this mutuality of love that should be so utterly distinct, I praise God that it's here. I pray that it will only increase more and more and more. We are to love the brothers and sisters. And Christians are to fear God, fear God. That word doesn't mean kind of a craven, servile fear, afraid that he's going to squash us like a bug if we step out of line. It means a deep respect for God. It means an awareness that God is God and that I'm not God. It's an awareness that God is here, that he's present, and that he cares about me and that he cares about what I'm doing and he cares about what I'm thinking, and he cares about how I'm speaking, and he cares so much about how I treat others. And so I want to live with this God-awareness, this reverence for God in my life, so that I live in a way that brings a smile to his face. That's the fear of God. That's the kind of fear we're to have as believers. And then notice he ends that Christians are to honor the emperor. So really, he finishes the section where he begins by talking again about submission to the government. But do you notice that the submission is not supposed to be a grudging submission? This word honor, it doesn't speak about begrudging something. No, no, we are to honor the emperor willingly because we understand that the emperor is the one that God has sovereignly placed over us. Whether his name is Nero or Bush or Obama or Trump, or Biden. One observation from this, Christians are both free and slaves. Do you see both of those things are taught here? Christians are free and Christians are slaves. We've been set free from sin, from guilt, from Satan, from death, from hell. We could go on and on with the freedom that we've been called to live in in Christ. And what does it look like? What does this freedom look like? It looks like being a slave of God. Oh. The world recoils from this, right? Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. We will not have you rule over us. We will do what we want to do, thank you. And that's what, that's, that's what feels so natural for all of us because we're born sinners and separated from God. I want to think the way I want to think. And I want to say what I want to say. And I want to do what I want to do. That's what feels natural. We we believe that there's this autonomous freedom that we are entitled to. Here's the problem. Autonomous freedom is Satan's delusion. It doesn't exist. It's not real. You see, we're not God, and so we are never going to have a God-like freedom. It's not true. In our sinful nature, we want to be free to think what we want to think and do what we want to do and live how we want to live, But here's the problem. The Bible says all that is is slavery to sin, and it brings us under the judgment of God so that one day we must stand before God and explain to Him why He sustained our being for every moment of our lives and gave us every breath that we'd ever breathe and kept our brains functioning, and all the talents and capacities we've received, we've earned none of them, And we have to explain to this God why we took all of his blessings and instead of living for him, we lived for ourselves. Friend, that is not a conversation you want to have with the living God. But there's a better freedom. There's another kind of freedom. And it's the freedom of being God's slave. You see, we're made for God. We're made to have a relationship with him. We were made to walk with him. We were made to serve him in a special way. We were made in his image. He gave us unique capacities so that we are not animals who have no sense of ourselves or destiny or where we're going. But no, we have this consciousness that there is this God with whom we have to do, and God offers true freedom. So let me ask you, when is a bird free? I know we don't do much participation back and forth in Christ's fellowship, but We can. When is a bird free? When he's flying. flying. That's right. A bird is free when he's flying. Now, when is a fish free? When it's swimming through the water. When are they free? Birds and fish are free when they are able to do what God had created them to do. Now, apply that to who we are. Who are we? Well, we are free when we are able to do what we were created to do. And what were we created for? We were created to know God and love Him and serve Him. That's what we were created for. So when am I free? I am free when I am able to do the things that God created me to do and be the one that God created me to be. We are most free when we are serving the God we love. As John Newton put it, God's service is perfect Freedom. So may God open our eyes to that more and more, right? Serving the Lord and serving others won't be such a drudgery when we realize, actually, you know what? That's what I was created for. (sighs) Yeah. And watch, brothers and sisters, if He doesn't fill your cup with joy as you live the way you were created to live. He will. Friend, perhaps you're wondering how you can enter into this position of freedom and service. How does that happen? It happens by turning from sin and living for self and by putting your trust in God. That's when it happens. You see, this is the message of the Bible. The entire Bible was written to explain this story of of a creation that was lost through sin, but then it's being restored. And how's it being restored? It's being restored through Jesus Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Son of God. You see, we're all created by God to love Him, to serve Him, to have a relationship with Him. But our first parents, they sinned against God. They rebelled against Him in the garden. We sinned in Him. And because we come from them, we've all inherited that same nature that says, I don't want to live for God. I want to live for me. I want this autonomous freedom to do what I want to do and think what I want to think and go where I want to go. That's what feels like freedom to me. But the Bible says that's not freedom. The Bible says that is the definition of sin. And the problem with sin is that it brings you under the wrath of God because you were made for Him. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the message of Christ's fellowship is not, friends, you need to become more Christian-y today. Friends, you need to read your Bible more. You need to become more religious. That's that's not at all the message of Christ's fellowship. The message of the Bible, the message of this church is simply this, we have all failed to live the way we should have lived, and if we have to stand before God, there is no hope for any of us, but there is hope today, and the hope is found in Jesus. Who is he? Well, he's the eternal son of God that came into this world to live a perfect life. Why? He didn't need to do that. We needed him to do that. We needed him to live the kind of life that we have failed to live, and then he came not to serve himself uh, but to serve others, and so he did that how? by laying his life down on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners, bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then three days later, as he promised he would, he rose from the dead, showing that God had accepted that perfect sacrifice. And now, this morning, there is the offer of salvation. There is the offer of forgiveness. There is the offer of being made right with God. And friend, it's not anything that you can earn. There's no religious work you can do. There's no theological thought you have to think. There's no kind of prayer that you have to chant after someone else. It's not that at all. It's simply acknowledging that Jesus is the Savior God has provided for sinners. And listen, here's the hard part. Acknowledging that you're a sinner. That he's a Savior. And you come to the Savior that God has provided, and you say, I cannot do anything to make myself right with you. Lord God, but you sent Jesus to die for me, and I'm putting all my hope in him. And you put your hope in him and in him alone. And you cry out for mercy, and God saves. Friend, you're sitting today among a group of people who have experienced the salvation of God, full and free through Christ. We would have no greater joy than to talk with you about what God has done for us. But what he's offering to you today is freedom. He's saying you can be what you were created to be in Christ. Turn from your sins and trust in Him. It's an amazing free gift of salvation, and His service is perfect freedom. So how should we, as Christians, relate to the emperor, you know, the government that God has placed over us? The general principle is very, very clear. We are to submit ourselves to the governing authorities that God has placed over us because God is the one who, who has established those authorities, and there's only one exception. The exception is when they command us to disobey God, and that's when we obey the higher authority, and God is honored, and He helps us do that. May God give us wisdom to know how to do that. May God give us humility and grace as we serve Him in this coming week, and let's pray.